Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey Consent Exit Oh My Satan Not Grant. Huh? <laughs> Maybe it will make sense. Was that your password? I think that's Corey's that, password. Actually, that's a good password. <laughs> it is Corey's Consent password. Consent Exit uh, Forced Entry Oh My Satan Oh My God. <laughs> Okay, it might make, it might it make sense by the time you listen to this, guys. <laughs> yeah, don't this. worry. You will all understand this after the next 40 minutes of Corey rambling about security vulnerabilities. I thought that was you doing most of the rambling, Mark. It's a good point. I just like to pawn it all off on you. On today's episode, we'll be chatting about a very serious vulnerability across all of Apple's ecosystem, followed by another very serious vulnerability in Azure's Linux instances, followed by the death of the password. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and trudge on in. Trudge? Wow, you make it sound so dire. Password is dead. <laughs> So starting with our first story, uh, early last week, the Citizen Lab, which I think we've talked about him a few times with some of the research, at least on related to this story we're going to chat about. Um, but if you're not familiar with them, they're just an organization based out of University of Toronto that kind of focuses on human rights and research relating to that. They do a lot of stuff on the technical side. They do some stuff in the non-technical side. But anyways, um, the Citizen Lab just published information on a new actively exploited vulnerability in iOS, macOS, and watchOS. Basically, if you're an Apple fanboy like Corey, you were affected by this in every single way possible. <laughs> um, so the research came out of investigating uh, a Saudi activist's phone uh, that had been infected with the NSO group's Pegasus spyware. Uh, so we talked about that, I think about a month ago now, and also a few years ago. Um, NSO group being the Israeli company that basically sells exploits and spyware to both nation states uh, to quote unquote uh, for against crime stuff. But as we see, uh, some states tend to use them for going after activists. Um, Pegasus was their lead product that got a lot of flack in the news recently after it finally came to light. Again, I feel like we've been talking about this for years and it wasn't until a few months ago where it finally made like NBC and everyone found out about it. Um, but anyways, while reanalyzing an iTunes backup of that device, they found multiple files that ended with a GIF extension in the library SMS attachments folder. So basically, they had evidence that this particular individual received a bunch of text messages that had GIF attachments on them, uh, all right around the same time that this device was hacked with that Pegasus spyware. Um, of those files, there were 27 copies of a identical file with a GIF extension that were actually a 748-byte Adobe Photoshop file, a .psd file, just with the extension changed. Uh, all the names there had random-looking 10-character file names, and each one of them caused one of the, uh, the libraries in iOS to crash as it tried parsing that library. Um, additionally, they found four different files with a GIF extension that were actually Adobe Photoshop files uh, that contained a that contained uh, a JBIG2 encoded stream, basically the compression algorithm used for images and texts in PDF. Uh, two of those had a 34 character name, and two had a 97 character name. So basically, on this phone in the backup, right around the time it got hacked, they found that it received a 
whole bunch of text messages with what it, the phone thought were GIF, so images, uh, but ended up being Photoshop files and PDFs. Uh, you can see how this is kind of fishy. And the, the hint they gave away of that IM transcoder agent crashing on the device, typically if you're able to crash something by just sending a file to it, there's like you are more often than not, you're going to be able to find a bug in there that might give you some elevated access on that particular device. Uh, they ended up forwarding all these attachments onto Apple on September 7th after they identified them. And Apple came back on September 13th, confirming that there was a zero day exploit in a uh, software library used in iOS, macOS, and watchOS. They called it, uh, the name was processing a malicious, a maliciously crafted PDF may lead to arbitrary code execution. And basically it was a integer overflow in Apple's image rendering library, which is called Core Graphics. Uh, Citizen Lab gave this the name forced entry because everything these days needs a marketable name. And they believe that it has been in use since February of 2021. So that was a lot. Unpacking that a bit. First off, a zero-click remote code execution vulnerability in iPhone and apparently macOS and watchOS is nuts. Like that is the holy grail of vulnerabilities these days, getting something similar to that. Would you agree with that one, Corey? Oh, for sure. The bug bounties, I think these mobile remote routes without interaction are probably the biggest bounties out there. Like, I think Google pays like a million for something similar to that, if I remember from their bug bounty program. And Google's had similar issues too. Like, Stage Fright was very similar. The image processing engine for Android had a code execution vulnerability that, again, zero click, because most of these phones will do some processing of a message even before you open it, just to, like, for example, find the images and run them through a some form of, I don't know, transcoder, I guess. Now, if there's a flaw in that, you don't even have to open the message. It's just, boom, game over just from receiving it. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess good they found it. Now, so this actually, like, when this flaw came out, my family freaked out. They're like, oh, my God, uh, huge critical vulnerability. One of them uh, described it as Apple suffered a security breach, and now you need to patch all their stuff. And I was kind of quick to, you know, snuff out the fire of no it wasn't apple didn't get hacked it was a vulnerability but like in reality so this was a vulnerability that nso group discovered and used as a part of their pegasus campaign and yes they've been using it since february but like what's it, it, in reality like as a i'm not a super important person for someone like me how critical is this type of flaw do you think like do i i guess prior to it being disclosed what are the chances of me, Mark Liberty, random security dude at WatchGuard, getting hacked by NSO Group and Pegasus? Yeah, well, we have to be careful here. I think the key thing is we we know the threat actors in this case, so you have to use their mo their tools, tactics, procedures, and motives in your analysis of risk. But at a high level, this vulnerability is huge. If there were a threat actor that wanted to just hack everyone, this is a good one. So I don't want people to underestimate the severity of this. But to answer your question, smart, sophisticated, state-sponsored attackers, and this falls into that. It's usually when you're targeting activists and journalists, it's a state-sponsored activity they don't want to burn zero day. We've already talked about how this big issue 
is is one of the biggest types of flaws you can have. So if you're a state sponsored actor that's, you know, stockpiling O day for your red teaming campaigns, this is something you don't want to 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 be found like it has been and fixed. So to yeah, it's a long roundabout way, but I don't think the average human really has to worry that a bad guy took advantage of this since February 2021 against them specifically. Now, that's not to say maybe you should, I mean, one, patch no matter what. Uh, two, I guess, depending on the what you do for a living, you might, you know, it is something you might want to check out. But I, like you suggest, I don't think our family members, I don't think you or me were affected by this. But we absolutely could have. And, the, you know what I mean? Uh, in this case, if the, the threat actor is the one we think it is, it's probably not something they targeted widely. But it could go both ways and do no state-sponsored actors aren't the only ones that find zero day. But like you, my gut feeling is I don't think many people were targeted with this. I think it, it was used in very specific fashions. But you don't want to be too careful. Yeah. And basically, yeah, that's what the point I was trying to make was. Not careful. No. I don't think yeah. I'm not super worried about NSO group or I guess a country that purchased their software coming after me yet. Hopefully someday yeah. I'm rich and famous enough that someone will target me with nation state sponsored hacking. But like that said, now that knowledge of this knowledge of this vulnerability is out there, like people know there is a integer overflow that can lead to code execution in this library. I guarantee every hacking organization under the sun is trying to find that same flaw and start exploiting it before people roll out all their patches. Like hopefully if you've got an iPhone, you install it anytime you see one of those little patch things pop up. If you're like me on your Mac, sometimes you wait until a more opportune time where you can save all of your work. So it might take a few hours or potentially day. Um, and in the meantime, though, like other people are going to be trying to now find this flaw and write an exploit for it, too. Now that knowledge of it is out there. Um, and or not NSO Citizen Lab didn't publish any details or POC or anything, but more often than not, just knowing it's there is enough for a intelligent reverse engineer to go find it yeah and on top of that because of the patch we know it's in core graphics and like you say with the patch you could you don't even have to reverse engineer based on knowing so you, you can look at the patch itself and the changes made and and kind of give a lot of hints that that's the interesting thing patches themselves often present a map to people that can reverse not just the you know, not just the executable but the patches themselves they they can quickly find the differences and what has happened and and that gives them a lot of road signs to where to how to exploit the vulnerability yeah especially like i i don't know all the details of how apple patches their software but more often than not like it's not like a complete brand new image that you're installing it's literally just a diff between what you had and what is new and if you know how to unpack and view that diff then the stuff that's actually getting patched like like you said you can see exactly what they are changing it's not going to be like you know the source code where you can see they're changing these variables here you still do have to do some reverse engineering but all of it's there basically so and by the way the just so you know patch all your apple stuff anyways the 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 patch day that kind of released this patch i think also had a webkit fix uh, this one is not reportedly exploited in the wild, but it's a code arbitrary code execution that can affect Safari. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's relatively uh, the the only interaction a user would have to do is go to a particular site. But uh, once you got to that site, this could be another pretty quick 
uh, pwn your Mac or iOS or et cetera. By the way, they all use the same WebKit, the same core graphics. That was actually kind of interesting for me to find out that this is a flaw across all of Apple's ecosystem. Like, I guess, like, you know, it's not like Microsoft and Android are the same, but you don't typically see something affecting one completely different platform affecting another. Like, I guess it makes sense if it would happen. It's Apple, because I feel like Apple bases a lot of their stuff off the same underlying. I, especially with Big Sur and now the M1s coming out that are going to be in mobile devices and laptops. But but Big Big Sur itself made Mac OS the, even on a Intel machine. Uh, capable of running iOS software. So while I'm probably overstating that the core graphics on iOS is identical to macOS, it's I, there's lots of shared code. I mean, a lot of the stuff you do in a browser, whether it's a mobile or, or desktop one, is, is the same. So I, I do think, uh, especially with Big Sur, Big Sur, I think, brought macOS even closer to the iOS OSs out there. I'm a little surprised about the watch, though. The uh, you know the Apple Watch seems like just because of the very limited small device it had, it would have probably more unique operating system code. But I guess if it's just in a single library, it makes sense why they might share that yeah. across it, even if it's like you know potentially more extensive in some platforms versus yeah. others. Like WebKit probably does a lot of very HTML rendering things that happen the same no matter what type of platform you're on so i mean crap that yeah, flaw we libraries talked about, could be very shared it was last week i think where we talked about that vulnerability in microsoft office that was technically in the web rendering library and that that's shared with internet explorer so you're right that a lot of these applications and operating systems kind of share a lot of the same modules under the hood that you might not think about i guess but yeah long story short if you're an apple user or if you're like Corey, where every device you have has an Apple on it, make sure you patch him. <laughs> he scoffs. Well, silly joke. I do scoff because <laughs> I have like five PCs sitting next to me at home. <laughs> okay. Almost I'm a, every I'm a multi-system user. <laughs> I'm a gamer, by the way. And as much as I use Apple for work and like the mobile operating system, they still suck something I can't say on a podcast for gaming. Very true. Man, I remember back in my college days trying to play World of Warcraft on my old MacBook, and holy crap, that thing felt like it was going to catch on fire after like 10 minutes. It was so hot. That's my biggest issue with the move to M1 with uh, now it's integrated graphics only for Apples. Man. At least for a while you could get NVIDIA, but my issue then is still the OS sucked and uh, you paid twice as much for the same capability. Yeah. Either way, update your Macs, and I guess if you are... A, a journalist or someone who feels like they may be targeted by Pegasus, uh, Citizen Lab, if you go to their site and look for this particular disclosure, they actually have got some resources on how to identify if you have been targeted by Pegasus and if you have, how to get it off of your device. Uh, and I will say, if you have been, please reach out to us because that's super interesting and I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, we might even help you analyze any files there. Yep. Uh, so anyway, moving on now. Uh, our second story comes from the world of Wiz, uh, who are the <laughs> the research firm that brought us the Chaos DB vulnerability that we discussed two weeks ago now. Uh, they're back this week with another Azure vulnerability, actually four this time. Uh, so this one in an agent that is automatically installed on all Linux Azure virtual machine instances. Um, so if you're using a Microsoft Azure and you deploy a Linux host, 
Uh, along with it comes this agent called Open Management Infrastructure, or OMI. Um, it's an open source project sponsored by Microsoft that basically replicates a lot of the functionality for WMI, which is Windows Management Infrastructure, uh, only on Unix and Linux systems instead of Windows. Uh, for those of you that don't do a lot of uh, OS management, WMI and OMI, I guess, uh, let you basically mess around with configurations and gather events and stats from your endpoints through this agent that is running in the background on the hosts. By the way, the the researcher even, and I, I think they're over-characterizing it, but they even say silently and forcefully installs <laughs> OMI. So they're, they're kind of implicating that it's a... Uh, Look what Microsoft's doing that you don't know. I mean, there's a reason it's being installed so that Linux works in a good way in a, in a hypervisor, I think, or or in the Windows environments. So, I, but but to their point, you may not. I mean, this is not something you install. If you spin up a, v, a Linux VM, this will be there. Yeah, basically, if you hit the checkbox, which I think is checked by default for log collection during setup one of these VMs, and installs this agent to facilitate it. Um, a lot of Azure services use it, like Open Management Suite, Azure Insights, Azure Automation, all use this agent to communicate with Linux hosts in different ways. Um, now, the agent, like you said, automatically installed. Um, and because of its use, though, like some of the interfaces that it has to open up to these management systems, it's also installed with root privileges on the host. So it's got elevated access to it to be able to do basically anything you might need to on that endpoint. Um, so Wiz found four vulnerabilities in the OMI agent, including one unauthenticated remote code execution flaw and three privilege escalation flaws. Uh, they named this OMI God, which <laughs> I, that one I actually give them, it got a chuckle out of me. I thought that was a pretty good name for this. Um, oh my God. Yes. But man, so when you look at it, the remote code execution flaw that we're going to focus on is honestly as dumb as it gets. Like this is a flaw straight out of the 90s, in my opinion. Um, so OMI has a HTTPS-based management interface that's by default exposed on 5986 from some services. It can also pop up on port 5985 or port 1270. But it's basically a web interface where you can send post requests to it to carry out actions. Uh, so, for example, other hosts can send commands to it through this interface where you authenticate as a user on that destination endpoint using an authorization header. So basically, I log in saying I'm Mark's account with my password here in the author authentication header, and I want to run a, I don't know, wget command to go get some file off the internet. And the OMI agent will then verify that authentication header and execute the command with the permissions of that user which, you know, makes sense. That's fine. Uh, what Wiz found, though, is if you simply don't include that authorization header, OMI will run the command and it will run it as root in that case. So basically, if you just don't authenticate at all, you now have root access to run any command you want on that endpoint, which is kind of nuts. Like, am I correct yeah, in I saying this is a 90s vulnerability? He wrote a meme about it, I think, right after tweeting it. It is a 90s vulnerability. Pretty, pretty basic. And side note, but by the way, I give Microsoft a lot of credit over the past, I don't know, 10 years for trustworthy computing for getting a lot better. But there's a lot of scuttlebutt recently that all that work they've been doing now new Microsoft with new management is more like the Silicon Valley 
break things, move fast, and they might be losing some of their security pedigree. I, I don't know if there's that's more anecdotal. There may not be enough evidence, but it makes me think of that because this really is kind of a circa 90s level of an issue. Pretty, very, very easy to uh, take advantage of if you see it in a pretty big, oh my God, how did you not realize this? And this is one of those things where it was developed by Microsoft, but actually released open source. It's now part of the open source project, even though it is still effectively 100% maintained by Microsoft, like they're doing most of the pull requests and management of it. So it's officially open source, but like it's basically a Microsoft tool that they're using in Azure at this point. I'll put on conspiracy hat. I don't even really believe it, but Microsoft doesn't really love Linux. So maybe this is like, <laughs> we don't really give a crap. You want to install Linux? Do it. Fine. Here's what's going to happen. We told you so. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. We told you that we backdoored it. Oops. That would take a pretty okay, big tinfoil hat, I think. I'm just joking around. I, I don't, do not for a sec. I mean, I do believe they don't love Linux, but I don't think this has anything to do with that. But they did actually, like they gave Wiz a lot of crap and a lot of runaround and like even paying out a bug bounty for this one. They basically said, oh no, that's not ours. It's an open source project. It's not our problem. Even though it's being installed by Azure by default on all these Linux VMs, like that one kind of rubbed me a little the wrong way. Because like you said- yeah. We give Microsoft a lot of credit. They've done a heck of a lot better in the last decade than they historically have when it comes to both secure development and responding to vulnerabilities they have. And this one was like, uh, okay, what's going on here? This is a crap vulnerability. And you gave them a lot of crap when they tried to report it as well. Like it just it yeah. felt weird. Maybe it ended up in a different team's lap and that team doesn't care about security. Who knows? <laughs> but anyways, um, so the agent itself is installed automatically on every single Linux VM uh, in Azure's land. That said, those uh, web management ports aren't enabled by default on every single one of these. Uh, it has to, basically, it's if you're using some other service, it will expose that port, and you still have to have an inbound ACL. And by the ACL. way, you're, you're still talking locally, right? By the way, I know, I know the answer to this. I just want to make sure you said specifically enabled. So unless you have certain things turned on, the port isn't even listening whether or not internally or externally. Yes. So the port is not yeah. even open in listening unless you have certain services, like some of those management ones I mentioned, like configuration management in Azure will expose it on 5986, or at least open it. And even if it's open on the host, you still have to have a an ACL, an access control list, enabling that, like basically an inbound firewall rule, enabling uh, that firewall. connection. Yeah. Um, which you would have to explicitly define too. So there's a lot of like kind of pre-existing mitigations in there, but it's still pretty dang serious. Yeah, what you should know is if you have any Linux VMs running in Azure, step number one is to know whether or not you have that Azure somehow connected to a public IP that you're exposing to everyone in the world. And then two, is there a firewall rule? Uh, do you literally expose 5986854 or 1270? If you don't, the the oh my God part of this can be kind of temporarily held back. At least you're not letting everyone on the internet pop your machines. But at the same time, you don't want to totally discount it because even if, if you're using something like configuration management, it, it is a huge privilege escalation flaw for your local land. So if, if anyone gets in at all, 
into your Azure environment, this is a great way to get root on other machines. And like the worst case scenario is you have at least one host exposed to the internet like this, and then a bunch of internal ones that maybe not exposed to the internet, but an attacker could get into that external one and then from there pivot and hit everything behind the perimeter then too. So it has a pretty high ceiling in terms of remote or worst case scenarios, um, but at least by default in most deployments, uh, those scenarios aren't something you necessarily need to be concerned about. Uh, so that said, when it comes to actually patching this, so there is a patch available. It's already been pushed out to the different package repositories for Linux. It's a bit of a pain in the butt because you're going to have to take care of it yourself. I mean, it's not a pain. If you're if you're managing a Linux server, you're probably using apt-get. You're, you're probably this is probably how you're updating a lot of Correct. things. But in Microsoft land, it seems weird that you're using apt-get to update something. It, yeah, and it is when you're considering Microsoft, it is weird thinking of using yum or apt-get to update something. But you do have to add the the MS repo. Uh, so their repository to your package system, and then you can use your package management platform like apt-get or yum to update the OMI package. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's still, it feels weird having this package pre-installed without anyone knowing that now you have to go in and figure out how to update on your own kind of thing, or else you get this remote code execution flaw. I'm sure somewhere buried in the technical details, like you say, if you check that one option during install, they do tell you somewhere, but I... It's the kind of thing that you actually have to look it up to know. And I bet you lots of people just, you know, casually spinning up a Linux machine in the sure aren't thinking about that. I, I really want to hear Linus Torvald's response to this. And man, now Microsoft is screwing up Linux too, basically. <laughs> <laughs> don't add stuff to my clean OS. Yeah. Okay. But at a minimum, make sure you don't have any of those ports we mentioned ex uh, exposed internally or externally. Um, I guess by the time you're listening to this podcast, you probably will have found out if you had them exposed externally because that host is no longer under your control. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you can check out Microsoft's KB for this. The code execution flaw is CVE 2021-38647. And if you just search that up on Microsoft's KBs, they've got all the mitigation and remediation steps in there as well. That said, at the time of this recording, it looks like some of the Microsoft Linux VMs you can deploy are still being deployed with the broken version of OMI. So even come Monday when you're listening to this, uh, if you're deploying new VMs, it's possible you'll still have to go in and update this manually on your own too. As an aside before we just finish, do you know Microsoft Patch Day was as you listen to this last Tuesday. So good time to check out all of Microsoft's bulletins. Yep. If you haven't already applied the batches i'm looking forward to seeing what wiz finds in two weeks from now i wonder what they're gonna uncover in azure's like they seem to be focusing pretty heavily on it lately and maybe on a mission to find something else i think wiz should uh start to find something in the next smart toilet seat bidet japanese heated toilet seat because that would be a great black hat conference title whiz and that I'm, I'm sure they could come up with some amazing title that everyone would want to go to at that's on. that's gross <laughs> why I, what were you thinking i don't know i thought they were a respectable security <laughs> analysis <of> company <laughs> <laughs> anyways moving on now um so as of last week microsoft has officially killed the password uh so starting Ooh. yes We've only been hearing about this to the last like half a decade, it feels like. But starting last Wednesday, uh, all users can now remove their password from their Microsoft account 
and instead sign in using the Authenticator app, Windows Hello, a security key like YubiKey, or an SMS or email verification code instead of a password. <coughs> so yeah, you scoff at that. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, I, I scoffed at the final one. I yes. mean, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about this in general, a lot of questions I have, but the final one is the worst. Basically, if you <laughs> register the Microsoft Authenticator to your Microsoft account now, uh, you can get into your, if you go into your account's advanced security operations or options, there's a checkbox in there to disable or create a passwordless account, which basically nukes your password out. Now you can use one of these other factors in order to get in. And like you said, Corey, there's a lot to start with there. And I guess the first one is this, uh, you don't have to have MFA enabled by default. So this is basically just replacing one factor with another. And not all of these replacements are equally secure. Uh, even like if you say that a password is insecure on its own, which, you know, people do have poor password practices. One of these alternatives is literally just a text message token or an email uh, token. Yeah, yeah, it's swapping one bad thing. I, I mean, our argument over anything that's not MFA has always been all tokens are hackable. By the way, passwords are not insecure. <laughs> Users' password practices are the insecurity. And so the level of security a password offers, we consider it nowadays to be relatively low, but that's more because of the user, because users aren't doing it right. But the point is we know there are ways you can have passwords stolen and leaked, but guess what? Windows Hello, it's just biometrics and it's not perfect. Biometrics have been hijacked, leaked, stolen. Uh, granted, by the way, Windows Hello, like Apple and others, try to do the biometric storage locally. It's not storing it in the central server, so it would be harder to get the actual tokenized biometric from the local device you're trying to get into. But a person's face is replicable. <laughs> I mean, we have all kinds of photogrammetry, 3D printing, you know, people are always hammering at Face ID, sometimes successfully, like the back V Vietnamese researchers. So you're switching from one token that has issues to another token. The second part of that, that that I do like is I do think tokens always get better depending on like, you know, when we first had fingerprint scanners, they sucked. They took an image. They didn't pay attention to anything else. But nowadays, they're looking for capillaries in your finger. They're trying to de detect the heat to make sure you're alive. They're actually looking for a tiny little pulse. So does that make them perfect? No. Guess what? People's little gummy bear fingers have gotten much more sophisticated and, and simulate some of that too. But the point is the token's getting better, but it's never going to be perfect. It can be lost or stolen. Uh, I would say of those, the the uh, security key, which in this case is a YubiKey hardware token, is is probably one of the better ones. But even those can be defeated. So I think the the long-winded point I'm trying to make is switching from one token or one factor to another factor is is not additionally secure. It might temporarily give us the feeling it's a bit better than what the password is, but I think you're going to find that biometrics and other things will be targeted and there'll be bypasses there too. So that's my my biggest issue. Uh, but my my biggest scoff was against that SMS and email, which are provenly in, I would say SMS is worse than a password at this point. It's not that using a one-time 
a token, a, a one-time six-digit character thing is bad. It's the transfer method of that SMS. You know, the reason I don't mind the Authenticator app is they're using push, just like Auspoint, and that's relatively secure communication, of at least, of either something you have to approve or a token you have to enter. But email and SMS verification, those are known ways hackers are defeating multi-factor today, let alone single-factor. So that seemed kind of silly to me. Yeah, and I'm with you on that. Like basically, so let's just look at this apples to apples. If you choose to have email validation as your new form of logging in, uh, let's consider a scenario where your email account gets hacked. Uh, so like you use the crappy password on your Gmail account or whatever. So now a threat actor has access to your email. Previously, if they then wanted to get into your Microsoft account, they would also have to figure out your Microsoft password. password. So if you use the same password, then yeah, you're screwed. Uh, but if you used a different password, that's a whole nother layer of protection. Now, though, if they have access to your email, they just can get right in. They have access. Yeah. yeah. So that one seems a little uh, to me. Yeah, that's the dumb one. The The other thing that I, I've been doing a little searches. I mean, what I th think I need to do is enable this feature and actually do some technical analysis of the OS but is the password really completely gone from the OS? Is there no SAM file anymore? Is is Windows Hello's login somehow? I I I want to I, I want to actually validate the password's not there. And the second thing, even if the SAM file's gone, and nowhere is there a hash of this this token that you can just pass without even knowing what the hash is to log into the device. Uh, there is some, you know, once I log in with Windows Hello, when I try to open up a share, it's not going to want to do a Hello authentication right away. So the OS has a mechanism, whether it's Kerberos ticketing, whether it's old school, it has something to pass that session authentication that oh, this this is Corey and he's authenticated over to other computers on the network. And I'm curious of it, if going passwordless fixes all the problems there. Because barring the actually typing your password in the login, there's lots of tools like Mimikatz and, and Windows Credential Editor where you don't even need to know what the password, you know, a lot of the weaknesses more in the way the services, the Windows services pass your, your current authentication to other devices. And I'm I'm curious if that has changed at all. I, I, I want to know for sure that the SAM file is really gone. And the other concern I have with this seemingly hyper focus on trying to kill passwords at all costs is that, okay, so let's say we do replace it with a mobile authenticator app, which, you know, a push notification is reasonably secure, even as just a single factor. But on the flip side, like, availability is another piece of the security oh, gotcha. triad and if you're like me or my family your mobile phone doesn't always stay with you and it doesn't always remain in your possession indefinitely like you can lose your phone or break it or whatever and if you don't or have drop that, it yeah. and even have temporary act you know it, yeah you mentioned break it keep, keep going. and then suddenly you're like locked out of your accounts and potentially like indefinitely if there's some issue with syncing over this authenticator app or whatever like it, there's there's problems with then getting back into your accounts if it isn't backed by a strong password so like yeah you said is there a password backing it i'd argue in some cases that's still generally a decent idea as long as it's a strong password and by moving strictly to yeah. password lists it can I, cause issues 
I, I agree. And I, 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 that's why I suspect it may not be, it, this may be marketing as we're making you log in with these things, but I feel like there's probably some technical recovery mechanism so that in reality, the password is not gone. It's just being kind of abstracted to the user itself. So I, I, I want to test it more. And on top of that, I think you're throwing away a perfectly good token to, because you think single factor other tokens are just, are, are, are better. And the truth is I still stand by, it's not about any token, no token will ever be, no factor is ever going to be perfect. That's why the best thing to do is combine them. You know, it, combining them, it, it, again, we it doesn't have to be two passwords. I guess you could have something like the push authentication and a Windows Hello Biometric. But I think until they do something that kind of forces more than one token, you might are you might be delaying the problem because researchers haven't been paying too much attention to biometrics in the same way they have passwords. But in five years, I bet you will have a million Windows Hello bypasses, and you're back to an even bigger issue because it's still another single factor. And now you've tied your own hands because you don't have a password. A password with Hello would be perfect as multi-factor. So that's anyways like. That was my final question is, is deleting passwords really the future? Like, it seems like we shouldn't be focusing on just, oh, we got to delete the password and instead be focusing on, no, we need to add additional tokens. I, I think we're also forgetting the usability that there are certain corner cases where the password is more usable than this other stuff, like the last phone. I think the other thing that will happen is, again, I will argue passwords are not an insecure token. They're just used improperly. But guess what? Uh, one thing I know from multi-factor is people use all kinds of factors improperly. When you have multi-factor enabled, you need to set up a backup mechanism for when you inevitably lose, for instance, you're using Microsoft Authenticator. There's a personalized token sent to your phone that, that gives you the ability to put in the right code or for your push to work. If your phone loses that token, if you buy a new phone for Christmas and you forget to back up the old phones, I mean, even if you back up the old phone, you're not backing up the apps in Apple's cases. So if you forget to use Microsoft software to back up that token so that you can restore that token on your new phone, and maybe you didn't pay attention to the codes that some they sometimes give you to recover, you're not only locked out, you're locked out forever. There's been cases where people have lost backup codes, and if a vendor is serious about security, you're never going to get back into your account. It's gone from you. I'm, By the way, I can't use one of my emails on Reddit because of this simple mistake. Everyone can make it. By the way, AuthPoint, uh, this, this podcast is brought to you by WatchGuard Technology, has a very convenient third-party backup token option. So as long as you make sure you're backing up your tokens, you can recover them. But if you don't, I mean, if people aren't doing long passwords and aren't following the password practices, how many people are going to take those backup codes and put them in a place they'll remember five years later when this happens? And how many people are going to remember, I don't just need to back up my phone, I need to back up the tokens in this app so that my new phone can still do this. So I think, they, I haven't looked at their recovery options Uh but I, I think this could cause trouble too. I mean, there's a benefit to having a password as the quickest, easiest way to authenticate without needing lots of external controls that are checking things. So that's why, to some extent, I would rather have password remain as a, a viable token slash factor and still 
uh, force uh, and focus on multi-factor instead. And they do have their recovery method is that, you know, super long, super ultra emergency code you can enter in to kind of one time bypass MFA and reset it. But again, like you said, you have to A, download that and B, save it securely somewhere so that when the inevitable happens, you do have access to it to recover. But yeah, and I can see all kinds of situations. By the way, I'm pretty people don't realize that these things happen 10 years later, right? So right now, I diligently take those tokens, those backup codes, and I throw them in. I use a password vault, and the password vault actually shares, it vaults all kinds of secrets. So I attach tokens to my entry for all of these, these authentications I have. But what if one day I decide not to go with this vendor anymore? I lose my subscription and I move to something else or... Or I don't know, I upgrade computers. You know what I mean? So even when you're diligently putting them in one place, as I think we found with every peop- everyone that bought Bitcoin and put it on a USB key for safekeeping to look at 20 years later when it had value, Goodbye. you never find it when you want it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and even if you're good at trying to, to it, it's actually very hard to digitally archive things beyond a couple decades unless you're super diligent. So it'd be interesting to see how it pans out. Yeah. On the flip side, I, I do want to give credit to Microsoft for authentication is the hugest weak point right now. Making authentication stronger is one of the best returns and investment you can do to secure your people, which is why we push multi-factor so much. And trying to come up with unique ideas to the problems, like this password issue, we've known that user practices can never meet the level of security a password should have without the help of something like a password manager. So I will give kudos for Microsoft for trying something new and trying to to push the issue so we'll see how it turns out yeah so either way password is dead long live the password (laughs) i think we said that before (laughs) uh if you do want to play around with it though you can check it out in your advanced advanced security options under your microsoft account i guess just make sure you have good recovery options in place and man it's literally yeah. right next to the option for enabling multi-factor authentication. So make sure you hit that one as well as you're setting this up. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, or if you have been hacked by NSO's Pegasus, reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening and you will hear from us next week.